If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Some families were born into. Some families are made from the ones we meet along the way. Our families are built on love and traditions, the memories we share, and knowing that life is better because we're together. Pure Life, 100% pure quality water, refreshing every moment together. Visit purelifewater.com and discover where to buy Pure Life. Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart. But we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Songs can trigger a range of emotions in their listeners. Intense joy, sadness or even disgust. But how did this type of musical composition evolve and become what it is today? The acclaimed singer and author John Potter who has written a new book on the history of song in Europe, recently spoke to John Borkham about everything from the works of Schumann and Sting to the musical troubadours of medieval Provence. Firstly, thanks for joining me on the History Extra podcast today. It's a pleasure. Your new book is a a journey through almost a thousand years of European musical history, and you anchor this story through 12 rather different songs. I suppose my first question is, how do you go about selecting these 12 pieces of music? That's a very hard question. If you were to go into a bookshop and ask for a a book on history of song, you basically wouldn't find one. There's a very old 1960 publication which deals with composers and their great works. But I wanted to write something that was about the way songs are performed, who performed them and why and where and that kind of thing. So the way for me to do it was to just to pick 12 pieces that were sort of emblematic of some of the things I wanted to talk about and which were 
points of departure, really. So I, I could then talk about things on either side of a particular one. Each chapter has a title of a composer and a song. There's relatively little about the specific works. You know, they're only a small part of, of each chapter, but they do enable me to get, get the story going and give it some context. Start with the first work in the book, and that's a piece by Hildegard von Bingen, a female polymath who achieved extraordinary things in a number of different fields in the 11th and 12th centuries. What is significant about her music? Well, the extraordinary thing about Hildegard, first of all, is the fact that she's a woman, and the whole history of music is basically written by and in terms of men. And she is, if not the first, one of the very first composers whose name we actually know. There was no concept of of a composer as we understand it now. People made music and how it happened, nobody really quite understood. But within the context of the church, music had been made for hundreds of years, people chanting. And Hildegard's experience came out of that. She had various medical conditions that might have given her visions, which she claimed were waking visions, during which she was then given access to this music. And what arrived were perfectly formed pieces of music. And these are monophonic music, which is to say there's only the one line which she would have sung herself or her fellow nuns or the monks that eventually got hold of the, of the music. It's possible that somebody might have improvised an accompaniment, but we simply don't know. The day-to-day experience of music would have been this single line. Music was tunes, in other words. Today, when we, we think of song, and it's everywhere, you know, it's in lifts, it's in shopping centres, what we hear, as well as the tune, is harmony. And the modern psyche is sort of addicted to harmony, this sort of richness that comes uh, supporting the tune. You can have tunes with only one note, but these days it would make no sense without the harmony underneath it. But it means that tunes back in the 11th century were often quite elaborate and something very special for people to listen to. And that's the significance of Hildegard, that she could do it. She left this body of work, which is uniquely hers. And this is quite a basic question, John, and you are a singer yourself. How do you go about interpreting songs that are hundreds and hundreds of years old when we can't possibly know how they sounded in the composer's head? If you imagine an art historian, let's say, who was writing a history of art, but all the paintings before 1890 had mysteriously disappeared, and you then have to write a history of art without being able to see the paintings. It's a little bit like that for the historian of music, because you can't hear anything before the recording watershed of 1890. So everything is going to be speculative, and it's bound to be based on what is written, because that's the evidence we have. And our entire concept of of art and and music is, is based on scores that are written and musicians interpret the scores. Composers write definitive scores that we're supposed to have then reproduced. But before mid-18th century or so, it wasn't like that at all. And people sang in much the same way they spoke, which is quite tricky because the people who sing as they speak today are rock singers, folk singers, jazz singers. And classical music is very much predicated on having a special way of singing which, of course, is not at all appropriate for music written before the mid-18th century or whatever. So it's a tricky thing because you get back to a time where 
you're going to sound like the man in the street who hasn't had a singing lesson if you're doing it in a way that might be historically appropriate. Absolutely. It's a bit of a minefield. I want to talk about the, the troubadour tradition. That's quite a key part of your book. Firstly, John, what exactly was a troubadour? Well, the word troubadour comes from the word trobar in Occitan, which we think means to find. And the word uh, trouver in modern French is, is the same word. And the northern French version of a troubadour was called a trouver. They were itinerant musicians who would be very charismatic poets. They would write their own texts. They possibly accompanied themselves on some sort of lute or viol or harp. And with a bit of luck, they would be employed by the local aristocrat. And it so happens that in Provence, which is where Occitan, the Occitanian language is spoken, has the largest number of castles per square inch of anywhere in Europe. So there were plenty of courts which would be able to sustain this kind of music. Of their singing, the themes of the songs, what are the most common topics that people are drawing on? Love songs are absolutely front and, and foremost of the whole thing. And they came in various conventional ways. There, there were dawn songs where you would sing your love song having woken up from a night with or without your lover under a tree or whatever. There were also songs that um, satirised the church. The church was the main source of literacy, so in order to be literate, the singers, even though they were secular, would have had some sort of liturgical experience or religious experience in their childhoods, maybe, in order to learn how to write. So they would have understood the, the corruption that went on in the church and so on, and the, the church hierarchy. But love songs are the main body of, of work. A key person within this book is John Dowland, and specifically a song, Flow My Tears. Why is that an important work in your eyes? What, what does it tell us about, I guess, the Elizabethan period and the early Stuart period? Well, that period was, was remarkable for what we think of as um, English lute song, because from being songs that were derived from other sorts of music. You could have, say, a motet written in church, maybe, for, for a choir to sing. Lute players would then turn it into song, and you could basically make anything uh, into a song. What hadn't happened so much before then was a fully composed song uh, with all the parts written out and under the fingers. And Darland is perhaps the greatest example of this 30-year period where suddenly in England you get these fully composed songs. So there wasn't much room for improvisation, which there had been up until then and would again be after that this 30-year period. So Darland very carefully crafted his works and there were well, maybe two dozen contemporaries who also wrote similar songs. And they sang them themselves, probably. I mean, we don't have any reference to Darlin' singing, which is quite unusual because normally people would sing their own songs, which, again, is quite a skill these days we don't really have. There aren't many singing lutenists today because people either play the lute or they sing. But you have this period where you get a, a song which is recognisable from the present as a song that we understand it. And... When they came to be revived in the um, 1920s, Edmund Fellows and um, Philip Heseltine, the composer Peter Warlock, 
produced editions of these songs for piano. So you could then introduce them and they would take their place alongside Schubert or English song or whatever. And they would sound perfectly acceptable as songs of the 1920s. Such was the richness of the harmony that the uh, English lute song school came up with in that short period. Now let's go from England to Germany. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. And let's talk specifically about uh, German leader, these are poems set to music, typically um, a pianist and a vocalist. When did that style of songwriting first emerge? Well, you get in late 18th century German drawing rooms where the piano is becoming the instrument of choice, replacing the bigger lutes that had evolved during the earlier part of the century. And you get what we used to think of as minor composers writing songs for domestic entertainment. And eventually you get composers such as Schubert who took this form and made it into something that we would now consider to be a very, very superior product. But he was very fortunate in that he was introduced to one of the great singers of the time, uh, Johann Michael Vogel, who was an opera singer, and uh, older than Schubert. Schubert would have been about 20, I suppose, in... Um, the 1820s, and Fogel then took him under his wing and they began to sing Schubert songs, which previously Schubert had sung himself, accompanying himself on the piano, and, and he continued to do that. But with Fogel, he was able to do recitals, as it were, professional recitals of his own songs. 
And this is something that hadn't really happened before. And so the lead, this sort of German domestic song, became a more public property because you had this very famous charismatic opera singer who could sing it. And suddenly people could see that this was not just domestic entertainment. And what you got was a public stage where this sort of domestic and slightly introverted musical act was was done in public. And that hadn't happened before. Previously, concerts would be very long and rambling and would be the, the song part of a concert would be like a a kind of interval where people would go and buy the ice creams or whatever and you'd have big long instrumental pieces or choral pieces in, as the main attraction. Then you got Fogel coming along, Julius Stockhausen after him, lots of famous singers took up leader and it didn't mean that these were then song recitals like a modern song recital because there was still this idea that you needed variety and you needed a certain amount of entertainment. So often the, the pianist would play other bits of music in between. And you wouldn't normally reckon to sing a whole song cycle, for example. And the, the great song cycles of Schubert took a long time for the public and for performers to accept that they should all be done as a, an artistic entity. You know, you would either do bits of them and the publishers were reluctant to publish whole sets because they thought that singers would get bored and audiences would get bored of singing the same thing. But gradually, you, you got this idea of music as art and the song recital as a, an artistic event. And it's largely from Schubert, Schumann onwards, and then you get the process repeated in France particularly. That's where we get our modern leader recital from. It's a very interesting lineage, and you mentioned Schumann there. And there is a Schumann work in the book, which he wrote during his, his famous year of song, 1840. Can you tell us a bit about that and explain to listeners how it's constructed? Uh, yeah, well, there are two songs in the book that I've, I've not sung myself. And Du Ring an meinem Finger is one of them. One of the things I, again, conscious of the fact that, that history is traditionally written by men, and that there is this semi-hidden woman's participation in the whole process that I mean it's much better these days I and mean, we, we don't ignore it we do try and seek it out and and you have to do that to balance the whole history so I wanted to address the question and there are there were many very powerful and important female figures at this time and I mean the, the Schumann family is, is a case in point but Frauenliebenleben the cycle from which this song comes, is a very difficult one for a modern singer to, to sing. And I certainly couldn't sing it myself, though many of my colleagues uh, will, will happily sing it. And I'll give you very good reasons why. If you consider yourself a feminist, it's very hard to sing a piece that is about a woman devoting her life to her husband. She then is told the facts of life by her mother becomes pregnant, has the baby, breastfeeds the baby, happily married, husband dies, wife continues in faithful widowhood till her own death. And that's that's what the cycle is about. And it's a fantastic piece of music. The song, During Our Burning Finger, is, is a wonderful piece of music. And had Liszt, say, transcribed it for piano, it would have been one of the great pieces in the, in the Schumann-Liszt corpus. 
sadly, he didn't, or if he did, we haven't found it yet. And it uh, it raises all sorts of questions about why we do this music. What does it mean? Is it okay if you hear it, say, in German, where if you're an English listener and you're not a fluent German speaker, maybe the, la- the language lends a kind of distance to it, and so you're not having to grapple with the questions in quite the same way. If you're a German, you will get the message absolutely full in your face. Of course, in, in it's it's great music, and many people will say great music trumps whatever other questions there might be about it. So there are many questions to, to answer, but I thought it had to be addressed. I mean, you can read the chapter and come to your own conclusions as to what side of the debate you'll be on. In terms of performance, you talked there about the way that performance shifts. How does that become a common social activity? The story, uh, you, you could really do a history song entirely in, in terms of how it was accompanied. And up until the, uh, the piano was developed, usually it was people accompanying themselves on, on a stringed instrument of some sort. The piano then, again, people also accompanied themselves, but it was still very much a domestic instrument and you would sing with the family around the piano the real change comes with recording in 1880s 90s once people start to buy recordings for the first time people hear how the music is supposed to go in the past you've only ever heard it if you're doing it yourself or if you're in the presence of someone else who was doing it singing it to you and then suddenly the beginning of the 20th century you had this machine in your living room, as well as the piano, and the music came out of it perfectly formed. You didn't need to sing it anymore because somebody was singing it for you and they could do it much better than you could. So a whole change, not only in in the songs themselves, but the the way they were sung. Again, we, we studied to be a generic tenor or soprano or whatever, but if you were singing at home, nobody worried much about what sort of voice you had. You just enjoyed the music for its own sake, and people enjoyed hearing the family and friends. But then you would invite your friends around to look at the gramophone and see this sound coming out, sung by someone that is a recognisable soprano or bass. And not only that, but they, they sing the right notes, and they sing them the same every time. And this was also an absolutely extraordinary thing, because... Nobody ever performed the same song in the same way twice. Things have been getting more rigorous, let's say, from Wagner onwards, because he very much owned his own music, and he was one of the first composers to to think in this way. But by the time you get to the early 20th century, all composers, I think, felt they would own their own music. And you talk about this idea of composers owning their own works how does that tally then with this this resurgent interest in folk music in england at the turn of the 20th century you, know, you talk about people um, like vaughan williams uh, like george butterworth where does that come from well this was an extraordinary phenomenon because there's something about the the, the curious and artistic and leisured middle class upper middle class who suddenly discovered that there was folk music out there. Whether it was actual folk music or that they went to collect in the fields, and whether these singers were singing traditional stuff passed down from family to family, or whether those singers had learnt them in the local pub and uh, 
you know, they didn't have much of a long lineage at all. We don't know. But Vaughan Williams, Butterworth, and many others went off into the country collecting folk songs and folk dances. And they would sometimes set them to music and sometimes write music influenced by them. It's a useful thing for a composer because you've got a tune. Historically, this has always been terrifically useful. I mean, up until way into the Renaissance coming this way, very little music was completely original. It was often based on earlier music. So having folk music to base your tunes on was a significant um, compositional aid. But it also has terrific class implications. And the people they collected the folk songs from were people that they certainly wouldn't have interacted with socially. And it became crucial when you get to the First World War because the composers signed up as members of the officer class and found themselves fighting and sometimes dying alongside people that had uh, worked in their fields or opened doors for them. And it raised for everybody, I think, the whole the question of um, class and democracy and that kind of thing. So music and, and the social implications that flow from it change very much after the First World War. And it does go back to that folk song revival and discovery of the decade or two before it. Fascinating. And then moving more firmly into the 20th century, I think that one song that listeners will almost certainly be familiar with is Summertime by George Gershwin, which is actually an aria from Porgy and Bess. Why do you feel that this is significant, specifically in terms of the way it draws from other musical traditions? Yes, as well as history being written by men, it's also very white. And, you know, the dead white male composer is very much a feature of conventional musical history books. And I wanted to, just as I'm trying to uh, consider all sorts of music, song or potentially song, and you can't ignore the fact that in popular music that there is, let's say, a spectrum that goes from very straightforward folk song, let's say, to really quite sophisticated songs that will stand beside art song. Within that thread, there is this long history of a much more diverse selection of composers and performers, which history is until very recently mostly ignored. So there's a chapter which focuses on summertime, but has a sort of backstory of the involvement of black musicians in the creation of song and, and composition more generally. And you then get to this rather ironic fact that you get this extraordinary piece of black music written by a white man. And not only is that absolutely remarkable, but the song, that particular one, gets taken into the repertoire of opera singers, recitalists, almost everybody can hum it or sing it. So it's become something that has transcended both its origins and its compositional technique or whatever you care to call it, its its original context. And it's something, the cover versions of it, and there are literally thousands, are absolutely extraordinary. And I think it was very important for that story to be told. Uh, The Gershwin brothers, I think, understood this. And for them, it was something that, that touched their souls and, and it, it touched the souls of everybody who heard it and, and continues to do to this day. 
yeah, it's, it's one of those pieces that has just endured. And as you say, there are quite literally thousands and thousands of different interpretations of it. If we talk then about the mid 20th century, we have the rise of pop music and the rise of rock music. There is this blurring of boundaries. Do you think there is a bit of a false binary between what is considered in inverted commas classical and what we consider rock or pop? Well, there absolutely is. And part of the reason for writing the, the history is, is to try and get some sort of context going back to a time where there was no distinction between classical and popular. And, and the, the binariness of it is very much a modern and a 20th century phenomenon. It's less, less so now, I think. I mean, the, there are many class implications and so on tied up in that. But it is the case that you can have very, very sophisticated popular music and you can have very straightforward classical music. There is a spectrum where everyone can um, find their point at which they will engage with the music. And, I mean, a singer like Sting, for example, writes, composes, creates very sophisticated music. And similarly, uh, many of the bands of um, the progressive rock period wrote very elaborate uh, complicated music, not written in the sense of a composer having a genius idea and then realising it. But these are often collaborative works. And, and even when Sting writes a piece, he has many musicians around him adding to the richness of, of the texture and that kind of thing. Uh, recorded music is never finished until it's recorded. A lot of his songs, I think, stand up. I mean, he's been compared to Dowland, to Schubert even. It's a very different process of creation, but I think the result in many people's ears has a very similar effect. And in fact, Sting recorded some works by Dowland, didn't he? He did. In my first book in 1998, and it's called Vocal Authority, and I was trying to investigate why singers sing in the way they do and how it's changed over time. And I said that one way of discovering what a Renaissance musician might sound like would be if someone like Sting or Phil Collins were to record early music, and then you get a better idea of, rather than a, a modern trained singer, what it would sound like. And then, sure enough, Sting did record talent. And you do get an idea of what a Renaissance voice might have sounded like. The big question is, where does song go next? As you point out in the book, Bach to Benjamin Britten took a couple of centuries. The Beatles to Beyonce took less than a generation. What can we expect? Well, you can expect the unexpected for a start. <laughs> Things change very, very quickly. And uh, I mean, my book will be out of date tomorrow. And uh, the next book will be out of date the day after. It's exciting, but it's complicated by artificial intelligence, for example. And who knows how that will pan out. I mean, it may be that the last song has been written and that all we're doing is kind of recycling and recreating from the same materials. But there are certainly many musicians out there who are doing new things. There are singing cellists, for example. There are people who sing with banks of computers. There are still conventional composers who sit down with a piece of manuscript paper and, and, and write songs in harmony, tunes in harmony. And with um, social media and the interconnectedness of everything, somebody out there will be writing a song that you want to hear. Actually, when I was a university lecturer, I once um, did an experiment and got a bunch of students to invent a genre and then Google it. 
And we couldn't invent a genre that hadn't been invented. They all found their brilliant ideas had already been thought of by somebody else. But that doesn't mean that there is no room for, for new thoughts because um, you know, they keep coming and you, you won't keep musicians down. They'll keep finding new ways of doing things. That was John Potter. His latest book is Song, A History in 12 Parts, published by Yale University Press in 2023. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.